Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series on the church. And today, I want to talk about a passage that's actually one of my favorite passages in the scripture. And I've entitled our message, Broken. And I'm going to be talking about this subject uh, for two weeks, actually, because that's how broken I think the church is. It takes two weeks to cover it. But today I'm going to talk a little bit more about the definition and what's maybe wrong with the Western church. Next week I'm going to talk a little bit more about how to fix it. On August 2nd, 2007, about 15 years ago, a bridge collapsed. Now that's probably not big news, except this was not a little one-lane bridge with a small culvert under a country road only used by tractors and pickup trucks. This was not an old bridge in a foreign country without resources to fix it. This bridge was in downtown Minneapolis, and it spans the Mississippi River. It is 35W. 35W, when you think of 35W, if you're down in the States, we've got a a couple of uh, highways, much like Canada One. We've got a couple of highways, one that goes east and west across the whole country, and we've got one that goes north and south from Minneapolis, or actually north of Minneapolis, all the way to Dallas, Texas. That's 35W. That's the bridge that collapsed. It was rush hour traffic. Cars, trucks, and a school bus fell into the river or onto the banks below. 13 people died, 145 more were injured. Now the bridge was actually under repair at the time, but not taken out of service. It was classified, I believe, as structurally deficient, classified also as fracture critical. What fracture critical means is not that nobody can go across the bridge. They were using it every day. What it means is that there's, if there's one failed component, there, there are points in the bridge that are so critical that one failed component in a critical spot can mean the total collapse of the whole bridge, which is what happened. The NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, said it was a design flaw, not really a lack of maintenance or neglect. So a lot of people after the fact are thinking, oh, the bridge was old. That really wasn't the issue. It was a design flaw. Gusset plates were half as thick as they needed to be. Now you say, what is a gusset plate? You actually have several of them right above you, and those are as big as they need to be, all right? So sanctuary roof's not falling. But a gusset plate is how you sort of tie in one beam to another part of the structure. So when you have a concrete steel structure, you have gusset plates that will be on the edge of the concrete. They're, they're attaching steel beams, and, and there'll be bolts coming out of the concrete that fasten to the gusset plate that attaches it to the next uh, part of the structure. That's what happened. One of those plates failed. Interestingly, about 300 tons of construction Equipment and materials were piled on the bridge deck near where it failed. 600,000 pounds, which is the equivalent of 150 cars. So basically, you've got this bridge with a design flaw, and they put the equivalent of 150 cars weight right next to the design flaw. Bridges move millions of people across difficult terrain daily around the world, probably hundreds of millions of people. Without bridges, 
destinations are difficult or even impossible to navigate in some cases. People go back and forth to work across major bridges, Canada, the U.S., and all around the world. It's how you can have a job in another part of the city and get there efficiently. Every church, every church is a bridge. It is an almost perfect metaphor for what we are intended to be. Last week, we talked about the church as the vehicle of forgiveness to the world because we carry the message of forgiveness. And we talked about the passage where Jesus said, the church is unstoppable. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we talked about the church around the world, even though the church in the Western world is a little discouraging. North America and Europe, the reality is the church around the world is doing incredibly well and is growing and thriving, and especially in the global south, uh, there are countries with massive amounts of, of conversions to Christianity. Christianity is doing incredibly well around the world, but, but we don't see that here. And the church in North America, the U.S. as well, is, is declining and theologically moving more and more away from biblical faithfulness. The message I want to talk about for two weeks is broken, and I'm going to spend two weeks. First, I want to take the 10,000-foot view and define why I say that, and next week we're going to talk about culture and strategy and how to fix that. But I want you to turn to a, a familiar passage of Scripture, at least the first part of it, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, if you get to your New Testament, so about three-quarters of the way through the Bible in front of you, it's going to start over with page one when you get to the New Testament. Mark 11 is on page 36, page 36 of your New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through the Pew Bible in front of you, page 36, Mark chapter 11. It begins with the story of Palm Sunday. We're going to read through that. We're not going to talk a lot about Palm Sunday, but it is the setting, so we're going to include that part of the passage. Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage, which I believe means house of figs, a lot of fig trees there. And Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's a quote from some Psalms, by the way. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. And here's the passage we're going to focus on. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, it was spring, so fig trees are in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, which Jesus obviously should have known. He said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were listening. 
Then they came into Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, the fig tree that Jesus had cursed that morning. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. This is one of my favorite passages because of the emotion we see in Jesus. Whenever you see Jesus that wound up about something, I think it bears answering the question, why? Includes the Palm Sunday story, but this last part is incredibly intriguing because Jesus is hot with anger. Trending toward a little harmless violence. Yet, sinless son of God. I always love the things Jesus can get away with, the name calling and, you know, chasing people out of the temple. And it's not sin if he does it. If I do it, it's not okay. But what was so upsetting to Jesus? And what does it have to do with the church? What does it have to do with our series? First point, the setting, salvation history's greatest moment of opportunity. This is a key moment in salvation history. I could argue that all of creation looks forward to this exact moment and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because scores of Old Testament prophecies look forward to it. Details of it were in fact predicted hundreds of years before. Jesus actually riding a colt is actually a fulfillment of Zechariah, uh, I believe 9.9 or something like that, but a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy about how Messiah would enter Jerusalem. And this was Jesus' moment to finally and publicly own his identity. As we've said before, Jesus was a little coy, a little evasive about who he was, because if he acknowledged that he's a king, a human king, and they see him as a miracle worker, they'll want a revolution against Rome, because, uh, again, Israel was under Roman control. So if Jesus is king or Messiah, you could have political revolution. So he kept that a little quiet, except to his disciples. If he acknowledged that he's the son of God, the religious leaders will accuse him of blasphemy, which they did, and it's why they killed him. But at the end of the day, you don't want to say that either. That will cause revolution. So he kept these things largely to himself, but now it's time. It's just time to fully admit and own who he is. This particular story is more about his claims as Messiah and king, coming into Jerusalem, riding this colt. But the claims of divinity are surfacing as well. He's been talking about that a little bit lately too. So both are coming out. What it really means for us and for the people of that day is the world finally had its savior. Genesis chapter three, second or third page of the Bible, there's a prediction that the seed of the woman will one day defeat Satan. The seed of the woman is now here. Some say that's actually a prediction of the virgin birth, the seed of a woman, exclusively a woman, not a man. The world has its savior. It has Jesus. He had been walking among them three years very publicly, performing miracles, doing things nobody had seen before, actually performing miracles that even secular authors from the Roman era acknowledge. 
Some might call it magic, but people knew Jesus did things nobody could do. Jesus is ready to go viral. Even in a world without technology, it's going viral. In fact, his last miracle in that vicinity was the healing of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was dead, so I say healing kind of loosely. The raising to life of Lazarus after four days in the ground. That's a pretty impressive feat, wouldn't you say? He raised Lazarus from the dead, and I believe in the Gospel of John it says right after that, he was becoming so popular in that region that the religious leaders knew they needed to kill him. And Jesus had to go, I believe, into the region of Perea to get away from it. So he comes back for Passover. Passover is one of the key Jewish festivals required uh, of uh, faithful Jews, the three or four of them a year. Passover was one of them. They had to go back to Jerusalem. So anyone living nearby made this trip. Not long after this, actually, I believe, I believe there was a census taken. I don't know who took the census of how many lambs were slain for the Passover meal because then you can get a sense of how many people are around. And that census estimated that 250,000, this was Peter that did this sentence. You're a little late on that one, all right. So Peter did this census, 250,000 lambs were slain for a Passover soon after this, which means since it required a minimum of 10 people in that meal, 2.5 million Jews at a minimum were in and around Jerusalem for Passover. Could Jesus have found a better coming out moment? So this was a big moment. Jesus is owning his claim to be king. He's talking about his identity as son of God. Psalms are being sung to him by pilgrims as he leaves Bethany and heads towards Jerusalem. The roads, if you've seen the Hollywood movies that sort of describe this scene, you'll see, you know, they got a few extras, you know, on the set, and they'll throw 20 people here and 100 people there, and that's all they could afford. And so you've got sort of the roads, are, they're, they're crowded with a few pilgrims who also got up early enough to make the trip. That is not the scene. These roads were flooded with a torrent of thousands or tens of thousands coming into Jerusalem, coming to the temple, coming to the capital, 2.5 million people around it that week. And many of these people had heard of the miracles and people were going wild. They'd heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus had gotten out of public view for a couple of months. Now he's back and it was spreading. Gossip was working for Jesus in this situation. His popularity was going through the roof, and these were ripe souls ready to believe and follow Jesus as king and God. That's the setting. From the Garden of Eden until now, we look forward to this moment. People were open to Jesus, and he, as son of God, was with them, demonstrating who he was. They just needed a little help to get there. They they just needed the efficiency, the benefit of, of the temple system, the religious system of the true God to point people to the true God as he walked among them. That's all he needed. He just needed the system designed by God to work. And millions would know him. And that wouldn't happen. 
the institution intended to give God to humanity was broken. Now, I realize nobody likes institutions. I mean, if ever there, there was a sort of a culture and a time in history where, where people don't like or trust institutions, it's now. But I use the word institution on purpose for that reason because the reality is we depend on and we actually do like institutions to some degree. I don't like insurance companies. I do not like insurance companies. I've had so many bad experiences with insurance companies. But you know what? I actually do like being insured. Don't you? I do like being insured. I was waking up with a lot of back pain last night. I'm glad that I'm insured. I, I don't like politicians. I don't like governments. But I like the law and order that comes with civilization, don't you? I don't think eight billion people completely on their own is a good idea. That tends to sort of develop into survival of the fittest and a lot of people die. I think history has proven that. So I, I like government, I like armies, I like the ability to protect ourselves, I, I like that, I do. I even like guns, but I'm an American, so you understand why. Anyway, it's another issue. I don't like paying taxes to local governments, but I like being able to drive my truck on a road and have water that comes into my home and sewer and electricity, I, I, I like infrastructure. So when we say we don't like institutions, let's be honest. Nobody would admit they like institutions, but we really just want them to work. We actually do like institutions. We just want them to work. We want them to work efficiently, cost-effectively. We want to believe in them. We want to believe in the people who lead them. We do care about institutions, but yet we're all idealists. We want them to be perfect as we define perfection, and so we're all sort of critics when they're not. Jesus came into the temple area. The temple was a religious institution. It represented a religious institution. It was far more complex than that. You had the, the priests, the tribe of Levi, etc. So you had all sorts of you know, religious symbolism and, and personnel throughout the whole country, but the temple was the center of that. And he came into the temple area at the end of the day, at the end of his little parade from Bethany into Jerusalem, thronged by people, and he left but he left with an idea about what was going to happen the next day. The next day, Jesus comes back in a fury, literally. Now, on the way, he's hungry. And in this passage, we sort of have what looks like grumpy Jesus. Looks like Jesus is a little hypoglycemic. He's got a blood sugar issue or something. Because when people see this story, they're like, I, I've literally read a commentator who's like, this, you know, this can't really be historically accurate. Jesus wouldn't act like this. It's so petty. Well, Jesus is doing something on purpose here. So on the way, he's, he's hungry. And there's a fig tree nearby, but it's spring. And so the fig trees are leafy and they've flowered, but at best they've got small green figs. They don't really have fruit. He goes up to the fig tree, he starts sorting through its leaves, he's searching for figs. Disciples are looking at him like, do you really know what month you woke up in, Jesus? You know, we've tried to teach you to fish, you're not that good at that unless you pull the whole God card and fill the nets, that's a whole other issue. We don't know if you're much for farming, but you do use farming illustrations all the time, so we assume you know something about that, but you clearly don't know much about fruit. Jesus is sorting through the tree, feeling the leaves, nothing there. He says, may nobody ever eat fruit from you again. Curses the tree, kills it on the spot, uses his divine power to kill that poor little innocent tree. 
I just figured in the age of victims, that was a good way to put that. It made no sense. Hold that thought. They get to the temple. Now the temple is two different things. The temple is, uh, there's a Greek word hieron and there's a Greek word neos. The word hieron means like the temple area, sort of all the temple property. The word neos is like the little building in the middle of it. The temple area was actually 30 acres. It was a good spot. And, and it was 30 acres, which were a series of courtyards with the temple building sort of at one end or in the, in the center. One of the world's nicest buildings at the time. I mean, I'm not saying it was one of the wonders of the world, but I mean, it was like, it was Herod's temple. It was built in Jesus' sort of, during Jesus' era, during his lifetime, I believe there was construction on it. It's called Herod's temple. He's the king at that time. And the temple had been rebuilt under this king, but it reflected values and biases that were held by the rabbis of that day, and it did not reflect the temple that had been built centuries before in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look up Solomon's temple, it has two courtyards. I looked up Solomon's temple last night. We don't, we don't have, you know, they'll, they'll create little sketches of it. We don't have really, we don't have pictures of it, obviously, but sketches. Temple had two courtyards. You've got the building, and then you've got a courtyard for the priests, then a courtyard for the people. Priests, people, pretty simple, the two Ps, priests and people. You'll remember that now. You'll hate me for it, but you'll remember it. This temple wasn't like that. This temple was full of courtyards that segregated people away from knowing God. You entered the outer court, and it was called the court of the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. In this court, which was a large court, on the wall going into the next court was an inscription promising execution. The temple guard would see to it execution if you were a Gentile and went beyond that gate. You would be killed. You can't make this up. Because I believe Gentiles would have made Jews religiously unclean because they're Gentiles, they're unclean. Next was the court of women. Women could only go beyond that court if they had a sacrifice to offer. Then they could go into the court of Israel, which was generally for Jewish men. And then finally, we had the court of the priests where offerings or sacrifices were accepted. And then within the court of the priests, you have the naos or this temple building. Jesus knew the system well. He wasn't happy. The temple was supposed to be a, a light to the world. Israel was a light to the world. The temple was to be the center of its religion and people were supposed to be able to come to know the true God and you've got all this segregation going on where a Gentile can't even get past the first gate or it'll be executed. But it got worse. Every male had to pay a temple tax and all Israelites would have brought sacrifices to the temple at Passover. So in the court of the Gentiles, you've got money changers. So before you get beyond the court of the Gentiles, they were called money changers. This tax that you would pay had to be paid in legal currency. What do you mean legal currency? Well, this is the Roman world. You know, Israel is subject to, to Roman rule at this point. And so you have some Roman coins that might have the emperor on the coin. And in Rome, you had emperor worship. So those, it's like worshiping, you know, a pagan god. So you couldn't go to temple, go to church with those coins. You had to exchange them, do something that was legal, something that was sort of kosher, if you will. 
And so, so you come with your, with your temple tax, and there were bankers there that did the exchange, and they charged up to 30% for the exchange. And that practice hurt the poor. The money changers weren't even the worst part. You had sellers of doves because people brought sacrifices to the temple. And a pair of doves was the most, com- uh, the most common because a pair of doves was the sacrifice of the poor. So poor families would bring a pair of doves to connect with God through the sacrificial system. They had to pass inspection because all sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, demanded, the, the sort of the, uh, the standard was they need to be without spot or blemish. You can't bring your bad sheep, your bad bull, your bad doves or pigeons. You needed to bring the best because sacrifices were what? They were a type of Christ who was to come who would be the, the, the sacrifice without spot or blemish. He would be perfect. He would be sinless. So sacrifices had to look perfect because they symbolized sinlessness. So you would, in your small town, you'd get a couple of doves, and that sacrifice would cost about a day's pay for a common laborer, and you'd bring your doves to the temple, and they would be sacrificed there. It cost you a relatively reasonable offering, if you will. Inside the temple, they had, this temple area, they had inspectors. And inspectors would only, you know, allow you to bring in a sacrifice that was without spot or blemish. And boy, if you bought your... If you bought your sacrifice, you know, back in Nazareth, back in Galilee, there's a good chance you bring it to the temple. They're going to find something wrong with it. But the good news is they've got pre-inspected doves, pre-inspected doves for about 20 times the price. Well, now you're not talking about a day's wages. You're talking about closer to a month's wages for a poor family to bring the minimum sacrifice to connect with and worship God. And here's the stink of it all. All of this. The money changers, the sellers of doves, it's all in the court of the Gentiles. Where people, outsiders, are supposed to be able to come and learn about and find God. They're segregated and there's a whole sort of religious money system going on there. In fact, the court of the Gentiles, it was a big enough area and Jerusalem is sort of set on a hill that, that they actually put a road for commerce through the court of the Gentiles that, that kind of kept Jerusalem as one. The road went through the court of the Gentiles, so people go back and forth, and they have all this commerce, this religious commerce going on there. There was no concern for the spiritual journeys of the people who are outsiders. The people Jesus was coming to rescue people he's giving his life for. They weren't really welcome in any meaningful way. And that was too much for God to take. Jesus flew into action. Oh, I wish I'd been there. He flew into action. He flipped over tables. He threw chairs. Cages broke. Doves flew free. Money's rolling all across the temple floors. And it wasn't a bad-tempered Jesus. It was a broken-hearted God. 
It was a broken-hearted God who knew the implications of broken religious systems. He knew that when the bridge is out, it's the outsiders who will suffer. When the bridge is out, when religion doesn't work, when the institution that God set up on this planet to be a light to the world is broken, it will be very difficult for people to find the God who loves them and who is about ready to die for them. The insiders had run it into the ground. Jesus, in the middle of this fit of anger, said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. This very place that was meant to be a place where all people could connect with God. You've turned it into some little small part of your religion and you're ripping people off. The temple's purpose had been almost entirely thwarted. God's son was largely, historically wasted on the people who would have come to know him during his lifetime. So Jesus judged it harshly. Story ends with the road home. I imagine that was a little bit of a quiet trip. Disciples talking among themselves, what was that? Did you see him? Did you see him? He's like mad. Can he do that? The disciples get back to the place where Jesus had cursed the fig tree. It's withered and dead. Mark uses the fig tree as a metaphor of Israel's temple system, and that's what Jesus was doing. It was sort of a nature metaphor. It was unfruitful, therefore he cursed it. The fig tree, cursed. The religious system, cursed. Today's church, Bethany, other churches, what would Jesus say? Are we broken? Are we doing what we were intended to do? We're the outsider. I want to close with a few thoughts about that. I say the word close very loosely. First, the kingdom of God was always for the outsider. Now I recognize when you read your Bibles, this just doesn't jump off the page in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the nation of Israel. It's a theocracy. God is king. And so when you think of Israel, we're think, we think all the wars and how they're defending their land and all that stuff, and you're not thinking outreach. But I just want to remind you of a few things that we do see in the Old Testament. Abraham. First time God says to Abraham that he's going to make this covenant with him. He says to him, all families on earth will be blessed through you. The idea is that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. In fact, that word is used in the prophets. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. It was to be, and Jesus quoted this one, a house of prayer for all nations. I'm going to say it this way. Israel was a missionary nation. Think about that. They were a missionary nation. 
The idea was that they would be so blessed by God as they obeyed him and honored him that he would protect them on this little piece of land between three major continents and all the major trade routes, and everyone would come to know about their God. And during the Solomonic era, it kind of worked. People came from near and far to learn about God, and they would follow him. And even before that, you know, you think about when Jericho fell, Rahab the prostitute, what did she want? She said, I've, I've seen your God in action. I believe he's the real, true God. And, and when you come and conquer our city, remember me. And she was remembered. She was brought into the Israelite family. She married a very secure guy named Salmon, married the former prostitute. And she's in the line of Christ. Jonah. Jonah was supposed to be a missionary to Nineveh. God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no thanks. I don't like those people. God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. No thanks, I don't like those people. Okay, Jonah, take a swim and see what happens. Jonah took a swim. Great fish decided to you know, swallow Jonah. Jonah lives in the fish for a few days. It softened his heart. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No problem, God. I've always been on board with you. I was just testing you. Jonah goes to Nineveh. The city repents. You know what Nineveh is? That's the capital of Assyria. Assyria was one of the nations that conquered Israel, conquered, I believe, the northern 10 tribes, 722 BC, plus or minus. They hated the Assyrians, but God didn't hate the Assyrians. Israel was always intended to be a missionary nation. And Jonah, when the Assyrians repent, he is ticked because he wanted God to judge them. It is literally a book of racism in the Old Testament. It just reflects absolute racism on Jonah's part. Solomon's temple, two courts, remember? Two peas, priests, people. Versus Herod's, keep the Gentiles away and let's do all our business out in their court because they don't matter. Though there were wars to possess the land, We see all of that. Israel was meant to be a light to the world. The church, the early church, was full of Christians and pre-Christians, people who weren't yet Christians. It was not a holy huddle. The early church was a hot mess, if I can use that phrase. Read the epistles. It was an absolute mess because of the various maturity levels of all the people involved. In fact, there was a concern in the early church because you have this discussion with people, who's the church for? Is the church for Christians or non-Christians? For those people who feel the church is for Christians and really that we should all be kind of the holy huddle, I love it in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is basically sending a letter saying, hey, you guys, this whole speaking in tongues thing, gotta kind of cool it because if there are people among you who aren't Christians, they're gonna think you're just nuts. So in other words, Paul is actually telling the early church how to do church services because of the presence of people who aren't Christians. I want you to think about that. Paul is telling people how to shape church services because of the non-Christians that are among them. God's institutions have always been radically inclusive by their very nature and purpose. You know, one of the things that you might get asked in an interview, you know, Paul, what's your uh, philosophy of ministry there, Paul? Well, good question. Good interview question. 
Because there's a lot of debate about philosophy of ministry in the world today, and there has been over the last 30 or 40 years. Churches have kind of settled into who they are, but it doesn't mean we don't need to be tweaked a little bit and think about who we are and how we think about this. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was what's called a seeker-driven model, seeker-driven churches. It was very much popularized by Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, a couple of major churches in the States. And the reason they did this is people were open to Jesus. And interestingly, in American culture, and I'm assuming in Canadian culture as well, people were willing to come to church if they were invited. And so church leaders are like, okay, people actually will come and listen to us, so let's actually gear our services towards them. And then for people who want something deeper, we'll have midweek services and so on that are more towards discipleship. And the reality is many people were reached this way. The strengths were, it actually worked in many cases. The weaknesses were that really most people, even in those churches who are coming to church on a Sunday, are Christians. And a lot of the growth in those churches was from Christians from other churches to just like the way they did things. Now, a lot of people did get saved, but a lot of it was Christian transfer growth as well. And in the process of trying to make weekends about people who weren't Christians, they actually, I wouldn't say, some of you have the impression that seeker-driven churches were like unfaithful to truth. They, they weren't, but they were more topical, and they did take things to an educational level that was a little more shallow. That absolutely is true. And so that, that was a weakness. It would, became a little shallow, and they recognized most people coming on weekends are Christians, but, but they, were, they were very evangelistic and a lot of people came to faith. And people who reacted against that, I would describe as people who have the traditional model of church, which is the church is for Christians. It's for Christians. Discipleship. We're going to disciple those people. And unbelievers, eh, I don't know, it's not for them. You know what we're going to do? We're going to train our people to go reach them out in the world, and then after they're Christians, because we've made you such good evangelists, then they'll come to church. So Christians were trained to reach others on their own. The strengths of that would be, I suppose, if you're just doing deeper teaching on a weekend all the time, the people theoretically should become greater disciples. The weaknesses are, it was ignoring the fact that people were actually willing to come to church who weren't Christians. And we put church over their heads. And we ignored the fact that they were actually open. And then there's the middle ground, which is where I would find myself. And I'm going to use a term, not seeker-driven, seeker-sensitive. I hate these terms because people have all kinds of views, definitions of them. But there is a middle ground. And I believe it's biblical. We see it in the New Testament we see it in the Old Testament. We certainly see it in the New Testament. Most people in a church service are going to be believers. That is true. But since non-Christians are open to invitation, services need to be accessible and understandable to everyone. When I preach on a weekend, I know that I have to be able to reach three audiences. A pre-Christian who is interested, a young Christian who just doesn't know that much, and a mature Christian who thinks they know everything because you're the people who send me letters. <laughs> and by the way, in the future, sign them, because the person out front now has the permission to open all my mail, and the stuff that's unsigned and nasty doesn't come to me. That was just for one of you. We're always speaking to multiple audiences. 
Language needs to be thoughtfully understandable. If you throw out a theological concept, you need to explain that theological concept. You don't have to water anything down, but you better be understandable, because that just means you're teaching well. If everyone flunks, if you're a teacher in your class, who's got the problem? I would say if everyone flunks, it might be a teacher issue. God needs to be understandable. When we're talking about problems, we don't just talk about Christian problems, we talk about human problems because the reality is people who aren't Christians and people who are Christians have the same problems and they actually have the same questions. There needed to be more relevance in the church. One of the words we use of this kind of church is the attractional model. We need to create and emphasize excellence in in public services and make people want to come to them, like do a good job, make them welcoming, make them understandable. Never assume that people are gonna be so loyal to church they'll just come no matter what. And I think we all know that's not the case anyway after COVID. The seeker-driven model was flawed. It didn't create deep disciples. The traditional model was flawed because it didn't care about lost people enough and people were willing to come in here and learn about God. God always wanted his institutions to be open to outsiders and churches need to figure out a way to do that. And it's not easy. Third, discipleship versus evangelism is a false choice. I do not accept that that is a choice of cultures. Well, we're just gonna be deep here. We're just going to be deep. Well, how deep are we if we learn a whole bunch of stuff and we don't care about our neighbor who's lost? I've never understood that one. When Jesus commanded us to make disciples, he actually didn't use the word evangelism. Do you know how to make a disciple without converting them in the first place? Discipleship assumes an evangelistic process. The word mathetes, or disciple, means student or learner. Disciples Pre-Christians are disciples. In fact, I would argue that the disciples that followed Jesus weren't truly New Testament Christians till after the resurrection because they didn't understand the implications of what Jesus did till after the resurrection. They're like Old Testament Jewish saints. They believed in the true God, but they didn't understand Jesus. Discipleship includes the journey, the whole journey. And if you feel that church should be all about discipleship, only, how come churches like that tend not to reach people with the gospel? Because that can't be where deep disciples end up. Some of you might say, well, does it matter? God saves people, we don't. Yes and no. Next point, it's not just up to God, we control the culture. We don't control the kingdom. We don't save people, but we do control the culture. We set the table. And when Jesus came into a situation where the table was being poorly set by insiders, he was hot. We control whether the bridge works. It's our bridge. We control whether it works. We don't control who crosses it but we control whether it works. Finally, evangelism, if not prioritized, will always be difficult and rare. This is the hard work of church leadership and the hard work of church for all of us. 
as a pastor, as a, as a leader, one of the primary roles that I have is to shape the culture. That's part of leadership is we shape the culture. We create ministries that will help connect people to a network of people who already believe. So when people have crises and questions, there are people in their lives that can help them know and come to faith in the true God. We create the culture. We create ministries that do that. So they're already taking a few steps towards Jesus. Now, we're at an inflection point in the Western world. And, and it's not a fun place to be in, in my job or in an elder's role. Evangelism has never been harder in the Western world. There's a shift of theology going on around us that's absolutely terrifying. But it, it's the job. People need Jesus. And those very people are made in God's image, which means they have spiritual interest. And every generation of people who comes into, who are born into any culture, every generation come into the world, each generation comes into the world made in God's image and likeness with a conscience, with a a spirituality, a, a searching part of them to know what is true and who is God. Everyone has it, and I'm counting on that, and we need to count on that, that there's always an opportunity to help people come to know God and we are the bridge and the bridge has to work to the best of our ability. It has to work. We have to try to make it work no matter what it takes. It's our greatest work to make sure that if Jesus visited Bethany, if Jesus visited Calgary, that those bridges are in place. So at least the people who want to find Jesus, who have open hearts, have a lot of places to go, hopefully dozens, hopefully hundreds of places to go on a weekend where they can say, ah, that's who Jesus is. Now I know. God, we thank you for your word. And this is dear to your heart. It's dear to all of our hearts because Many times we care. We maybe just don't know how to exercise that care. We don't know how to get it done. We care about our neighbors. We care about our friends. We care about our, our relatives. And, and we're sometimes afraid or timid or people don't seem open. But we also care about the plight of a lost humanity, as did you. And I pray that over these couple of weeks, you would just help us to know how we can function in a way that helps more people cross that bridge to faith in Jesus and to life with him forever. Help us to be the bridge. Help us to be the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.